take your Bibles out this evening and uh, a little different approach. We're actually going to continue marching through the book of Acts this evening from Acts chapter 5. I want us to look at uh, a passage of scripture tonight that probably many times is overlooked. Uh, Not necessarily the first passage you would turn to if you were... Uh, looking for a message to preach on any given Sunday. And I think that's the beauty of just preaching through books in the Bible because you, you preach what comes next. I want us to look tonight at the topic, When Hypocrisy Kills. When Hypocrisy Kills. So find chapter 5 of the book of Acts and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. In uh, verse 1, Luke writes, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Father, we know the Bible tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oftentimes we look at sin lightly. The world laughs at it. But Lord, you're not laughing. Lord, we thank you that uh, this story is included in the canon of Scripture. Certainly a warning to us about pretending or being filled with hypocrisy. Lord, I pray that in our lives there would be honesty and integrity. Lord, that all we do be genuine with motives to to praise you, to magnify you, to help others. Lord, we pray that our ministry would be such that would pass any scrutiny placed upon it. Lord, if there's anything in anybody's life here tonight that from reading the text and studying it tonight that, that they need to deal with, Give them wisdom and strength and grace this week to do that. Lord, remind each of us that there is nothing in our lives that is hidden 
to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's often when things are going so well with God's people that the enemy will come in and try to subvert the work and destroy the fellowship. Now, we saw in chapters 3 and 4 how the church had faced outside opposition. Uh, Obviously, Satan was coming against the church, but Satan had failed in his attempts to silence the church through that outside opposition and through that persecution. In fact, it had had the direct opposite effect. The fellowship had been strengthened and God had blessed them and increased their witness. But you know the enemy doesn't give up. He just changes his ugly strategies. And so when attacking the church from the outside had not worked, we see him now trying to corrupt and destroy and disrupt the church from the inside using some of the church's own people, believe it or not. Now, this attack from the inside is evidently what Satan also tried to do uh, to the church at Pergamum and the church of Thyatira. In Revelation chapter 2. You'll recall what was going on there. Some at Pergamum were guilty of the sin of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now you'll remember that story from your Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Balak had hired Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel and every time he opened his mouth to curse them, he instead blessed them. And finally, uh, when Balak was so frustrated over this, uh, Balaam finally just told him what to do, Just, just get the sons of Israel to intermarry with the people around them that they're not supposed to intermarry with because when they marry them, uh, then uh, they will follow after their gods. And so over time, they will be corrupted. And apparently something of that nature was going on at both Pergamum and Thyatira. And and Jesus addressed that in the book of Revelation and said to both of those churches, I have this against you, that you're guilty of this. But again, what was going on there was Satan trying to destroy the fellowship from within. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 5. Now folks, we need to face the fact that Satan is a clever foe. He may try to come at us directly as that devouring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8 that is roaming to and fro in the earth seeking somebody to devour. He may come at us that way. If that doesn't work, Paul says, you'll recall in the book of 2 Corinthians that he might disguise himself as what? an angel of light, and deceive people. Jesus said of Satan in John chapter 8 verse 44 that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. 
It's no wonder in the book of Jude that we're told when Michael was disputing with the devil, the archangel Michael was disputing uh, with the devil over the body of Moses, he didn't dare on his own say, I rebuke you, but rather he said, in the name of the Lord, I rebuke you. Even the archangel Michael didn't try to deal with him in his own wisdom and strength. And so you and I certainly need to be prepared and we don't need to be ignorant of his devices. Now, so far in the book of Acts, we have seen the early church unified. We saw that, for example, back in chapter 2 and verse 42 where it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. What a beautiful picture there of the church being unified. We've also seen the the church being magnified. There in verse 47 of chapter 2 it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then chapter 4 reminds us that it was a church multiplied. Every believer was proclaiming Christ. No wonder they went from a fellowship in those early chapters from 120 to 3,000 and then 5,000. And so they were a church unified, magnified, and multiplied. Satan's attacks had not silenced them one bit. Neither had his attacks divided them. In fact, when you look at the way chapter 4 closes, look at how how that uh, passage closes beginning there in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so Satan's attacks hadn't silenced them at all or divided them at all. In fact, they were continually strengthened. And we see there at the end of chapter 4 how we are introduced to a great man there. His name is Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Now perhaps he was singled out for special reference because his gift was particularly significant. He's an example of somebody who was uh, generous. Somebody who was generous and, and did a great act in the name of the Lord. But what Barnabas did out of pure motives sparked jealousy in at least two church members. Two church members by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And so as chapter 5 opens we're introduced to these two deceivers. Now, ironically, the name Ananias means God is gracious and the name Sapphira means beautiful. But we see that their names were certainly not indicative 
of their true character. They evidently wanted to enjoy the, the warm reception that had, had gone to Barnabas. Even though Barnabas' motives were pure, uh, again, he got some kind of recognition. He was a respected member of, of the community. And, and Ananias and Sapphira were jealous over that kind of recognition. And so they schemed together. They planned together the, this, uh, this scheme of their own. And what they're doing here is they're playing the part of the hypocrite. They want to appear to be spiritual. And they want to appear to be uh, generous. But in reality, they're only pretending and they're lying. And God strikes them dead because of it. Now folks, it may seem to some that that God dealt with this pretty severely. But I think it's worth pointing out that whenever God begins anew and dealing with people, a new chapter in salvation history, the Lord judges sin very seriously, uh, openly and very quickly. Now you'll remember two occasions of this right out of the Old Testament where this happened. If you were to turn and look tonight, you can later on, but read uh, Leviticus 9 and Leviticus 10. You'll remember uh, Aaron, and his, Aaron and his sons had been anointed as priests. And in chapter 9 of the book of Leviticus... God had commanded Aaron to offer the offering which he did. And God was there in their midst and God was pleased by the offering. As chapter 10 of the book of Leviticus opens up, Aaron's two sons, uh, uh, Nadu and, and uh, what's the other guy's name? I'm drawing a blank on his name. Anyway, uh, Abihu, uh, Nadab and... Abihu, that's right. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, boy, those are some easy to forget names, aren't they? They decided, hey, their dad had offered this burnt offering and offered this sacrifice in, in Leviticus chapter 9, and they'll just go and do the same. Now, they had not been commanded to do that. But they offered that it's interesting how the Bible translates what they did. What kind of fire is it that they offered to God? Strange fire. And what did God do? God struck them dead. These were Aaron's sons. And, and Moses looked at Aaron and said, Aaron, now hold your silence. Hold your peace. And they recognized that what God did was just and fitting. You'll remember also when the children of Israel were going into the land of Canaan and they attacked Jericho. God had told them, you're not to take any of the spoils of the land. It, it's all devoted to me. And they attacked Jericho. The walls fell down. They were celebrating a great victory. They were getting ready to go up against Ai, a small city in comparison to, to, to Jericho. And, and all, the, all the men of Ai came out and just sent them running with their tails tucked 
between their legs, didn't they? And, and they were, and many of them died that day. And they went before the Lord, and they're like, "Lord, what happened?" And God said, "It's because there's sin in the camp. I told you that all of the spoils of war from Jericho belonged to me, but you've taken from the spoils for yourself." And they said, "Who?" And the Lord finally revealed that it was Achan. And they brought Achan out. Not only Achan, but his whole entire family. And they killed him. They stoned him. And then he was burned. And so in these new periods in the Bible, it's pretty common in, 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 as God is... Doing something new in his people or just a, a new chapter in salvation history, if you will. It, it, it's, it's pretty common in the Bible to see those occurrences where the sin was dealt with very openly, very quickly, and very severely. Dr. Curtis Vaughn, professor, by the way, I had at Southwestern Seminary. He points out in his commentary that that had their sin been allowed to remain in, in the new church, the integrity of the body could have somewhere along the way been called into question and this new work of God simply must have integrity in the eyes of the public to be accepted. It was so important that integrity be preserved. And plus it was a sin against the Holy Spirit. It ought to be a reminder to us of how serious sin is. The scripture says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know folks we live in a society. We live in a culture that just kind of laughs at sin. And mocks at sin. And, and you cut on television shows and the sitcoms. And, and everybody's just kind of making jokes out of sin. And sometimes even in the church people do. But God's not laughing. And it's also a reminder to us that we're not to be pretenders. Do we ever try to pretend to be more spiritual than we are? Do we, do we ever try to pretend that we're doing something for God when in reality we're not? We need to be beware of pretending. Now three things I want to point out tonight about this sin. Number one... We see that this sin was energized by Satan. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This was a sin energized by Satan. Now folks, this is serious to wrestle with because the assumption is that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage. Set the stage for all this. It says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So far, so good. But then came this fateful family conference. They decided to keep back part of the price. Verse 2 says, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. What they didn't realize is their conversation 
between themselves was heard in heaven. The way all conversations are. Satan deceived them. Folks, Christians need to be aware that just because they're believers, they're not in the flesh above Satan's schemes. We need God's protection and power. And as Christians, we're not immune to God's discipline as I indicated to you this morning. In fact, it is precisely because we are believers that God may deal with us even more severely over certain issues. It was a sin energized by Satan. Secondly, I want you to see tonight this sin was motivated by pride and a love of man's praise. They wanted the same attention being given to Barnabas because of his gift. Satan deceived them into grabbing a hold of attention for personal profit. They wanted to be recognized. That's what they were ultimately after. You don't get the impression from reading this that giving the gift really meant anything to them. In fact, you wonder if they came up with the scheme and then sold the property. It's as though uh, this all was, was not an afterthought at all, which would have been bad enough, but even worse, it's premeditated. Maybe they had so much, so much wealth, so much property, they didn't even need it. They wanted the praise of men more than they wanted the property. Now folks, woe be to people in the church who only want to appear as servants on the outside to get the praise of people or who do things for the church merely so they can get credit for it or praise from people. We've got to remember that our motives matter to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about this. Jesus talked about the Pharisees and and the scribes and, and the other leaders, how when it came to their praying and it came to their giving, they were doing what they were doing Not to lead the people, not to fellowship with God, not to build up the assembly. They were doing what they were doing so men would pat them on the back. You remember what Jesus said about that? About their giving? They'd blow the trumpet, they'd they'd sound the horn, they'd have attention called to their big gifts that they were giving. Jesus said, you're doing it. To get a pat on the back. To get the praise of men. Don't think that you're going to get any other reward. Don't think that you're going to get any reward from God. God said you wanted reward from men. You wanted recognition from men. Well guess what? You got that. You achieved your goal. And so you're not going to get anything else. You got what you were after. Don't expect praise from God. Or their prayer time. All the times throughout the day, the Jewish times of prayer, some of the religious leaders would, would plan their, their, uh, their route into the town. Their journey into town, they would plan it around these times of prayer. So what they would be doing, they would be getting into a major intersection in town or a crowded place in town at a a time of, of prayer. And they would stop there and they would go through these motions showing that they were praying. Somebody might say, oh, look at old Joe over there. Isn't he spiritual? Well, he may not be spiritual at all. 
You see, he's not praying to commune with God. He's not praying to fellowship with God. He's planned it out this way. So he'll get into town and everybody will look at him and everybody will just think he's a godly man. And again, Jesus said, you've got your reward. You've got your reward. And that's why he said when we give, don't, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And, and, and when you pray, uh, go, into your, go into your closet and, and pray to God in secret. He, he wasn't forbidding public prayers because in the epistles we see instructions for public prayers. Paul, for instance, gives Timothy instructions for public prayers in church. But what Jesus is teaching is, is that we need to be very cautious of our public prayers are we doing it just to sound good or impress men? Our prayer life needs to be to build fellowship with God, to commune with Him. What's our motive in doing what we're doing? Do, do we ever do anything just to, to pretend? To come across one way when in reality we're something else. They were pretenders. They were hypocrites here because they were wearing a mask. They were pretending to be something that they weren't. Now, third thing I want you to see. Oh, by the way, let me also add that, uh, that no doubt on, on top of wanting the praise of men, you have, to always, you, you have to also realize that undoubtedly there had to be a love of money in their hearts. Because if they didn't love, mo- if, if they didn't love money, they would have given it all. But they gave a portion and they held back some for themselves. And there's a reminder in 1 Timothy 6 to the rich that they need to be rich in good deeds. Rich toward God and rich in good deeds. And not have a love of money. Money itself isn't evil, but it's the love of money that's evil. So they wanted, they wanted the praise of men. And they were also idolaters in the sense that they loved their money. They wanted to keep it back for themselves. Well, a third thing I want you to notice... This sin was against the church. No doubt had this scheme succeeded and, and, and not been judged immediately by God, uh, the church would have placed these two deceivers probably in positions of high regard. Their dishonesty and pride and deceit would no doubt have, have shown up in other issues as well. And the witness of the church would have been hurt as ungodly people were exercising leadership. But their sin was seen by the Holy Spirit. He was a witness to everything. The scheme, the sale, the bank deposit, the holding back, the lying, everything. The Holy Spirit saw everything. And then what great verses... Verse 11 and following are, it says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The fear of God came upon everybody. And God did great miracles among the people. The church was multiplied. And in verse 13, those not right with God didn't even want to come around. Now folks, all of this came about through a holy church. Now, you know what? That ought to make us stop and think today, shouldn't it? The church today is so obsessed with numbers. And some pastors will do just about anything just to get a crowd. And, and, of course, to a certain extent, we need to think about numbers. Behind every number is a soul that is going to live somewhere for all of eternity. But, folks, what we chiefly need to be concerned about is holiness. Holiness. What if God did today things like He did right here? Like I said earlier, what He did then in such an open and, and a public way, we, just, we mainly see him doing at particular times in salvation history. But you know what? God still does judge. Remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth? We may not always see him doing it. But you remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11? The way they were coming to the Lord's table, the way they were sinning, and the way they would not judge themselves. What did Paul say? He said, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you have even died. Wow. Of course, we don't know when God's taking somebody's life because of sin but certainly sometimes evidently we might say how sad old brother Bill had a heart attack and died and it may have been God taking him out again what Paul say to the Corinthians it'd be better if you judged yourself so God wouldn't have to. So it may be that God's still doing some of this. But he's doing it more in the 1 Corinthians 11 way. Versus the Acts chapter 5 way. But again, the seriousness of sin. I want to give you four lessons tonight. And then we'll, we'll close with the invitation after that. But lesson number one. Uh, we must check our motives and our honesty in everything we do. If we're serving or giving for personal recognition while not practicing uh, personal holiness, we'd better repent. If we're serving or giving for personal recognition and not practicing personal holiness, we'd better repent. We've got to check our motives and honesty in everything we do. Number two, we'd better not allow a love of attention or of money to make us dishonest toward God. 
Number three, we must judge ourselves on issues of personal honesty, lest God judge us. And number four, we must realize that sin is serious and God deals with it. Now tonight I would ask you, is there any segment, any segment of your heart that that desires the praise of men more than doing what is right. You better check those motives. Because motives like that, motives that are after recognition, motives that are after the praise of men can very quickly lead you down the wrong path. Are you a pretender? Do you try to paint yourself off spiritually being something that you're really not? You need to remember tonight, God sees and God knows. Is there integrity in your life? Could people say about you that that what they see is what they get? You know who I think of? I always think of Daniel when I think of integrity. There were those people who tried to, they kept trying to bring those accusations against Daniel and they couldn't find anything. They put his life under a microscope and they couldn't find anything. Now folks, that's integrity. Could your life, could my life bear up to that kind of scrutiny? And then lastly, tonight, maybe there's some issue of personal holiness that you need to deal with. Perhaps there is some kind of sin in your life. You're aware of it, and you know that God's aware of it. And there's some kind of sin in your life that you need to deal with. You need to judge. You need to judge yourself. You need to repent of it. Because if you don't, one of these days, as the Bible says, each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Far better to deal with it now. To recognize it in yourself and go before God. And ask God for strength and repentance. In forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, very challenging passage in the New Testament that quite frankly we just don't hear much of today. Lord, it is a testimony to us about the seriousness of sin and of pretending and hypocrisy. Lord, sometimes we act as though you don't see or you don't care. Remind each of us tonight that our lives are an open book to you. Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that if everything about our life were put on a big screen for everybody to see, there'd be no shame. God, help us not to pretend. I pray that genuinely from the heart, we would have hearts 
that seek after you. Hearts that want to glorify you. That in our service that we would do things to build up the body of Christ, to win the lost, to encourage the saved, to, to help your church. Doing things not out of any kind of selfish motive for recognition or praise. But just doing it because we love you. And we want to be that living sacrifice to you. Lord, I pray that this passage would prompt some introspection in people's lives. And where change is needed, that that change would indeed occur. We pray in Christ's name.